0: Hey everybody, thanks for listening today. Uh I'm super excited to have Mirwan Irani on the phone. Um Marwan is in he's in Asheville, North Carolina. He is he and his wife Molly um and several restaurants in both Asheville and also the Atlanta, Georgia area. And uh they are just crushing it, frankly, So They their their places are very popular, very well loved, um well ranked by anybody from, you know, the Yelp folks give them great rankings, and then they get National Press from um, New York Times and Huffington Post, so an amazing story, and I'm, Marilyn, I, I just really thank you very much for taking the time to do this today. Not at all, it's just a pleasure to be here. So you're, um, so kind of down back to your beginnings in the business, now, uh, help me out here, I, I just, you know, I kind of, I did my research, I wanted to make sure I, I knew what was going on and, and it looks like so you were um you, you grew up in India and you, you came to the US you got your MBA uh and you're out there in San Francisco and you're doing sales and marketing right. and for a while and then you you know obviously they have a, there's a great amazing culinary team out in San Francisco sure everybody knows that uh but then yeah. what, what happened like how did you go from an MBA in sales and marketing probably in corporate America I assume, to uh, to opening restaurants and then in two thousand fourteen you, you were nominated for best chef in the southeast. Uh um and you you're, you're self taught. So what t- tell me the tell me the man. I'm fascinated.
1: Sure. Um well it's uh I mean you got the first part down and so there I'm in San Francisco. I uh, I'm actually in the auto industry. Um it was funny, I came out of grad school and moved to San Francisco to be with Molly who, you know, I'd met while working at a restaurant, my first job in America. And, um, and, uh, she was in the cinema States. I fought her out there and you know, fell in love and stayed. So, um, I, uh, accidentally, completely accidentally ended up in the auto industry working for Lexus. And I thought it would be like a part-time gig that I'd do for about six months because I wanted to go back to college and, and, and get a different degree. So, uh, what happened instead was I stayed with Lexus for five years and then with Mercedes-Benz for three years and started off in sales, literally selling automobiles and then worked my way up in a management and an upper management and finally at a corporate level so um but in 2005 um Molly and I we had had our our little girl and I was um managing a fairly large division and she was working full-time because you know we're in San Francisco so unless you made you know millions of dollars you were just getting by so, <laughs> and, uh, and we um we're just sort of wanting to get out of the rat race because um I was leaving for work at six in the morning to beat traffic, and my daughter was sleeping, and I was coming home at ten eleven at night, and my daughter was sleeping, and uh, and uh Molly looked at me and said, we can't do this anymore. We're missing our kids' childhood. She's being raised by the heaters. And uh, we did that cliche thing where we sort of uh, looked at each other and said, well, what if there's a small town somewhere that's still cool and has and progressive and Reminds me a little of San Francisco and uh, and but it would be affordable and Molly could quit a job and I'd find something to do and, and we could raise a family there. So literally, we Googled small, cool towns in America <laughs> 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 where I could find a job. And along with a few of the usual suspects like Austin, Texas, back then and a couple of places, Asheville, North Carolina popped up really high on the list and it was sort of serendipity. And literally a day later, I was, talking to an old-time friend uh, who was in the real estate industry. And I just sort of – he was saying, how you doing? I was telling him about my love, blah, blah, blah. And I just mentioned casually, well, know, I just checked out moving – or checked out this town called Ashland. And he's like, that's so funny. I was just talking to a real estate developer that's looking for a good guy to to be in sales and marketing. And, uh, and hey, if you're thinking of Ashland, I can, I can connect the two of you together. Um, well, five days later, we moved lost Stock, and Bail. Um, back wow. to everything. I drove the dogs across country and Molly and Aria flew, and we had a moving truck pack up and get us out of there in five days, and we moved to Asheville, North Carolina in 2005. Um, I started in real estate development, working for a large developer that was buying traffic of land outside of Asheville and building second-home-gated communities with golf courses, and it was perfect. We loved the town. We loved the people. Um, And um, uh, and then 2009 happened. Um, The market crashed. And literally, my developer went from millions of dollars in sales to facing bankruptcy in less than six <clears throat> months. And that's when uh early 2009, Molly and I were driving back from uh, the little little getaway, and, and she looked at me and said, what are we going to do? So the backstory to this, since you asked me about where did the food part come from, was, yeah, you're right. I mean, San Francisco, the food seems amazing. But coming from India, and you'll find most immigrants from, you know, countries like India or Mexico or or, or anywhere in Asia, um, when we come to America, like, we kind of tend to start learning how to cook, even the men, even if I come from a culture where mostly the women cook, Um, because, yeah, I can go out to an Indian restaurant here and there, but for the most part, if I want to eat sort of my country's food on a regular basis, I better learn how to cook it quickly, Um, and, and so I used to do that, and I used to cook at home, and started cooking mostly Indian food, and was cooking in college while I was in my MBA and my roommates would show up and I'll know when I was cooking and the next thing you know it was a crowd eating. And, uh, and then when I got to San Francisco, I'm sure you can experience with some really great restaurants. I just started expanding my repertoire. So literally, uh, living there for 10 years was an education on not just becoming a foodie, but also really learning how to cook. Um, and I also just found myself naturally in and out of the restaurant world. Uh, my mother-in-law was a restaurateur and she had sold a restaurant to move to California, but then she was dating a guy that was a chef and he took a lot and I'd hang out with him and I knew a little bit of the behind the scenes of the restaurant world. So whenever I was at a restaurant, I got a chance to meet the chef or go in the kitchen or pick up something new. And that's what I did. And, uh, people laugh when I say this, but I was like, I learned a lot from watching the Food Network. Well, back then it was, you know, before Rachel Ray and yeah, all of that, it was back when you still had Jacques DePay and Julia Child, with their shows on TV, and you could actually learn yeah. something from watching these guys cook. And that was it, books, the Internet, and TV. So you know, fast-forward back again to 2009, and Molly was asking me this, what turned out to be a pivotal question, like, you know, for the last 15 years, you've enjoyed what you did, you were good at it, but you never jumped out of bed saying, I can't wait to
0: get to work today.
1: And she was like, maybe this is a sign. Maybe they were meant to do, maybe this is a chance to do something different. Now, of course, we're both 40, so this is like classic midlife crisis moment, right? So I go, I'm like, well, if I if I could do anything I wanted to do, I mean, I, I wanted to cook. And we talked all the time about me maybe going back to um, Culinary Institute of America and, and getting a, you know, a culinary degree. And then I would actually think this through and go, right. And then I'm a $10 an hour line cook for eight years working for some asshole chef that's so going to be. You're me the whole time, and I'm 40, and I can't compete with 20 year old young guns. And I'm like that's the stupidest idea in the world. So, um, and uh, and that was the end of that conversation. And uh, I, you know, there's this you hear this cliche that if it's something just percolates in your subconscious for a while, and you let it do that, sometimes something awesome can pop up. And two weeks later, I'm laying in bed reading a book at 11:30 at night with Molly by my side, and I sit full upright and look at Molly, and I'm like, I'm an idiot. And she goes, well, what do you mean? I'm like, wait, I don't need to go work as a cook at somebody else's restaurant. I can open my own restaurant and and do my own thing and pay myself what I want. And she looks at me like, what the hell do you know about opening restaurants? And I go, nobody else does. I said, take a look around. <laughs> it's not one of the highest failure rates in this business. I'm like, "Yeah." I may not know a lot about restaurants, but I know a hell of a lot about business and sales and marketing. I said, I think we can do this. And she goes, what would you cook? And I said, the only thing that could be the most authentic thing that I do, which is my cuisine. And she said, well, okay. So, um, I still had about a 150 page business plan to convince her that we'd actually make money doing it, but that's kind of how it started. 150 pages, huh? Well, I went a little nuts. I mean, I, there was, you know, for a while I was really worried about this sort of myth or urban legend that, you know, hey, 70, 80, 90% depends on who you ask. Uh, of restaurants, you know, go out of business in the first five years. And I was only really curious to find out if is this for real, or is this just an um, sort of urban legend. And so I did the research. Uh, the University of Florida had a hospitality management program where they'd done a study on restaurant closings, and uh, they listed five things, five reasons why a typical restaurant would close. And they have the numbers, by the way. It's not, it's not on the first year. Um, I, I think. Uh, I want to say, I, th- I think a third of restaurants close in the first year. Um, the ones that don't close in the first year usually make it through their fifth year, and that's when the second third closes, and for <clears> completely <throat> different reasons from the first year. But their point was that, no, he says, if all the usual suspects are why a restaurant goes out of business, um, lack of capital, um, you know, city food, um, bad market conditions, location, all of those were completely eclipsed by the single most overriding factor for why they said restaurants run out of business. And that was a lack of a defined concept that you could, in three words or less, if somebody asked you what kind of restaurant it was, answer that question. And the study went on to say that's why, you know, even mom and pop Mexican restaurants and strip malls and Chinese restaurants and, and Italian restaurants all seem to last. And, and you know, they not, not, not even ones that aren't even that good. He goes, because one thing they have going in their favor is when somebody goes, what kind of food it is?" you can just say Chinese, and that's it. But when you have yeah. a restaurant that's going like, well, we do a fusion of Mediterranean tapas style, but with a little bit of Appalachian ingredients, and uh yeah, you lost it. <laughs> that was your point. Right. So that's how it's fifty page business plan, because I wanted to make sure my concept made sense.
0: Clarity and focus. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, you, so you went – uh so then what year did you – when when did when did you first open uh chapanage
1: uh well it's funny you called today today's our to the day of 6 year anniversary opening cha september twenty third two thousand nine um what time is it so you made
0: it past your fifth year
1: yeah yeah we this is year six Yes, yeah, three fifteen we were supposed to be open this day six years ago um uh, at um until 11 o'clock at night, but we ran out of food at 2 o'clock and had to shut the door. So right around now, I think my are practically prepping in the kitchen. So, yeah, we uh, opened the doors to literally a line on the block. Uh, by the second day, there was a TV crew inside because they had no idea what the hell was going on and why they were lying on the block. Uh, we ran out of food, like I said, at 2 o'clock on the first day. On the second day, we ran out at 4 o'clock. On the third day, we had to shut down because we had no food left to even cook, and we had to go buy food and prep it. Um, we opened the restaurant for $70,000, and uh, the only money that left was $250 in the cash register. And I knew that if we didn't sell enough food in the first three days, it wouldn't have enough money to um, buy more food or even make payroll for that first pay period. So that's how close we cut it. Wow.
0: Dude, that's amazing. So, okay, that brings up multiple questions. Yeah. Uh, number one is um, – how were you able to open for just 70000 in that, you know, world when lots of people are spending 10 times that? Um, I yeah. guess let's start with that. And then, and then did you, was that, did you guys get investors or was that just your, your savings or how did you, you know, tell me about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, again, this is the middle of the Depression now, of 2009. Lehman Brothers has gone under, you know, Maryland, Lynch got sold out of Bank of America. I mean, the, the the market was a disaster and no bank was giving money to anybody for any oh. huh. So we went to a local bank and, you know, the lovely people and they just as kindly as they could said, marijuana we're not loaning money to anybody, A, B, restaurants, that's just, you know, we don't normally rent, give money to restaurants in the best of times. And see, Indian street food, they're like, you're in a town of 100,000 where 95,000, you know, 99,500 people are white, um like, People barely know where Indian food is, let alone Indian street food and uh and that was the end of that conversation. Then I went to um the s b a then I went to um sort of you know these um sort of micro loan organizations that are set to help businesses and and it was just, everybody was impressed with the hundred fifty page business plan, but at the end of the day' like that, you know we we can't give you the money um We, so Molly was adamant that we not leverage our house because it was at this point the only asset we still had. And, uh, so then I wrote an open letter to all my friends and family uh, that, you know, anybody that was close to us. And and I kept it open so I didn't actually email it to people individually with a name. I just sent it as a blank CC and say, if you're getting this letter and you don't respond, I won't know who it is or who it isn't. Um, this is what we're doing. And this is what we believe in. And if you believe in us and, and believe that we can, we'll pay you back. Anything you can get would be appreciated. And, and the checks started coming in the mail. $75, $2,000, $300. And then a pivotal check was uh, um, an old, uh this uh, young kid named Isaac Clay, who's now the general manager at Chai Buddy Decatur and I'm a partner in the business. Um, I'd been his counselor at a youth camp once. That sounds, mm. you know, uh, I think he's, at least 10 years younger than me, and uh, he was teaching at uh, uh, the local high school here, a math teacher, and he came to me and uh, basically said, hey, uh, and he's been to India a number of times, and he says, hey, I heard you were trying to raise money for this Indian street food idea. I'm like, Yeah, he says, oh, I, dude, I've been thinking that I would want to open a restaurant like that because I think it's a brilliant idea. I'm like, oh, shit, well, sorry, Isaac, I did not mean to step on your toes or serious thunder. something. I had no idea you were... Had thought that you'd want to do something like that. He said, no, 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 I should never open a restaurant. I'm here to give you a check. And, uh, I mean, I think I was, it was 24 at the time, maybe, and a teacher. And he wrote a check for $25,000. And, 25? uh, $25,000. And that was, wow. at that time, you know, it was like, it was the difference between we can do this and we can't do this. And, Amazing. um, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at this guy, dumbfounded, going like, A, how did you get this money? And B, this must be every penny you must own. Um, so I think in that moment, it was sort of a – established the first cultural touchstone of Chaipani, uh, where it established this notion that we believe in people more than we do in things. Because really, at the end of the day, the cat, to believe in me to give me that money, uh, not not my idea. Um, because, you know, I looked him in the eye and said, I will pay you back. And, uh, and, and so that's how it happened. And then we, you know, you know, the ball kind of got rolling. A few more people came up with the rest. We, of course, kept maxed out our credit cards and emptied our bank accounts. And there was this little business downtown that was, um, going under. And a new owner from Atlanta had purchased the building, uh, Sammy Rollins, who was their landlord till today. And he, um... I found out from my real estate broker that I sort of put the word out to that I was looking for something, that the new owner was buying the building, and the existing restaurant that was in it was going out of business, and if I could get a jump with the new owner and talk to him, he might give me the space before he puts it on the market. So, when I was standing his wife, Laura, said he his, you know, was a just, was wonderful, sweet guy, this old-school gentleman from... Uh, Atlanta that had built his money in the plumbing business, and he had had Indian food once in his life, and his wife had never had an Indian food. <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and he's looking at me, and he's asking me what experience I have in the business, <laughs> and I'm like, well, not, none really. I waited tables, that matters. Uh, where did you get your training as a chef? Well, actually, I'm, I'm self-taught. Um great, well, how much money do you have for working capital? Uh, actually, none. All we have is what we have Ah! <laughs> <open> the- <laughs> 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 he goes, and um, and then he goes, but tell me why you want to do this, and and tell me what you're, you know, what what do you think the numbers will look like? And I showed him my business plan, and Molly and I talked to him for a while. And then um, that evening, I sent him an email. I'm like, Sandy, I know this may seem like the craziest thing in the world to to uh, give this lease to me and Molly, and I'm, sure, I mean, it was prime real estate. I mean, it's this amazing spot in downtown Asheville, which you know there has been a huge benefit as far as location us being successful, at least in those first couple of years. So, and, and he could have leased that thing in a, in a heartbeat to anybody in town. And um, and um uh, I emailed him that night and just thanked him for meeting with me and kind of just gave him one last pitch. And uh, three days later, he called us up and said he wanted to give us a space. And uh, uh, when I asked him why, he said, well, he said, I reminded him of him a little bit in the sense that I did my homework. I had my business plan. I've talked through the numbers. None of it seemed pie in the sky. And at the end of the day, he says, and... He followed up, and he goes, if "Somebody does that, then they have what I believe it takes to be successful in any business." Um, so, hey, seven—what was it? Nine years of being in the sales business uh, helped pay off with just a simple follow-up to say thank you to somebody for taking their time. So yeah, what, Woody Allen is
0: I uh Woody yeah. Allen said something like eighty percent of success is just showing up. I mean, it's the same sort of thing there. It's just that you followed up, and uh, most people, people don't do that. that, that. Amazingly.
1: Yeah, amazing. And that's—I mean, it's in 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 my in when I used to be in the in the auto industry, it was a damn cliche, but, but people never followed up. So.
0: Golly, so uh so then you guys, but then you still okay. So then the next question you're, did I, did I that I that I had popping my head earlier was okay. So you, you you got this money, you you raised enough, you guys got, got started. You didn't have any working capital. I mean. You know all these rules of thumbs are like, oh, we'll have six months of working capital or whatever, and you have like a couple of days or whatever. So what? But then you have these lines out the door. So how did you do that? Like how did you create the the interest to be owing? People would love to have the issue of holy crap, we ran out of food at two o'clock our first day because we had so many people. (laughs) Like, what did you do to create that kind of interest before you even opened your doors?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, even though everybody else was looking at this plan and my idea thought I was insane, I knew that this would be just a hit. I mean, Asheville was just on the cusp of this burgeoning food scene. I looked around this town and I saw people like myself and Molly, essentially young couples moving here from big cities like Seattle and Portland and, you know, Atlanta and, 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 and San Francisco and L.A., all doing yeah. what we were doing, trying to find a town that was sort of, you know, progressive in the mountains, hip and cool, and had this cool farming community. It was a great town in 2009 to just be, where there wasn't yeah. the pressure of, like, oh, my God, I graduated college, and now i got to go find a, find a job somewhere. It, it was the kind of town where your artists and your hippies and your, you know, people that were taking a break you know, were, you know, hanging out because it was affordable, and it was a cool vibe to the town. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Berkeley in the 80s, I and mean, it took, like, five blocks out of Berkeley and jumped into the mountains. And so I knew I knew the market was there. I knew there was enough people around us to make this thing happen. And again, like my number I mean, I'd open the thing for seventy thousand dollars. I was hoping to sell a few hundred cups of chai and a few samosas, you know, at the end of the day. I and mean, in in my mind, I'd be in the kitchen, Molly would be on the register, and you know, and my daughter would be in the corner doing the homework. You know, your your, your classic immigrant family opens a restaurant. Soon as you know, you know, but I'd be like we'd be together, uh, be socially employed. And most importantly, I'd be happy. And if I was happy, I knew Molly would be happy and I would be happy. So that was the plan. Um, and, and I knew those numbers would work, but I also knew that there was potential for this to um, get busy because this was the kind of town that would love the idea of, ooh, Indian street food. It sounded different. It sounded exotic. The second thing that happened was all those friends and family that all um, gave us money, well, there was a number of them that didn't have money but showed up to help work. Um, people showed uh, – friends from California, friends from around town, friends from Atlanta said, hey, it's, you know, late summer. We're going to be in Asheville. Uh, you know, we'd love to come and help you put this thing together. So it went from, you know, the startup of a business to almost like this, uh, you know, kind of like a community work. I mean, like sort of almost like building a house for a family. And, and that's what a friend felt like. And – uh um, and we couldn't even pay, you know, I mean, we couldn't even pay people. We were giving, even people that we had to pay, we were giving them five or six bucks an hour and then giving them something called dosa dollars. You know, dosa is a South Indian street food snack. It's like a crepe. And <laughs> so we gave them dosa dollars, which is credit, to a food and party for life and or uh, maybe a future paycheck if they ever made money. Um, and uh, And those guys, you know, have their circles of friends, and their circles of friends have their circles of friends. And again social media was just starting to take off. Twitter is just starting to become you know what it is today. Um and it, it was literally one hundred percent word of mouth. Um by the time let me, um when we let's see, we opened in September, right? By um December of that year, um the local newspaper ran the most mentions on social media of any event or incident in um, Western North Carolina, and, uh, the opening of Tripani was the number one most tweeted, blogged, or written about event in Western North Carolina. So, yes, and my instance, right, people showed up, and way more than I talked to would. So. Wow. That's,
0: that's amazing. Um, and so this was, for so six years ago, so you guys get started, you know, just right out of the gate, and here we are six years later, you've got another Tripani indicator, which is Atlanta, right, or outside of Atlanta? Correct.
1: Yeah, it's basically then, so it's the neighborhood
0: of Atlanta, right? Okay. And then you have got Buxton Hall uh, there in Nashville, which is a uh, barbecue joint. I want I want to learn about, and then MG Road, which is a bar and uh, bar lounge. So you've got you've got uh, four locations uh, with, and then a fifth on the way. You said right that you're opening later this year.
1: That's right. Yeah, we're opening in Pump City Market in Atlanta. Uh, up so another version of Indian Street food called Bootsy, and it's going to be an Indian Street grill.
0: Well, marijuana Mar- Mar- how are you doing this, man? You're doing all the stuff that you're not supposed to be able to do. That's five in, like, six years. Like, that, that's all... And all these places, I mean, you you know, like, folks, listeners, you check these places out. On, on I mean, they're, they're highly rated. They're well-loved, um, you know, really popular, successful places. So what's... Tell me about that. I mean, that's... that's um, that's fast growth, and I'm sure that there's a lot of challenges that come along with that. Uh, you must have really good people with you. Know, I guess the guy who wrote the check, so he's he's part of the business too. That you um, he yeah. wrote the twenty five thousand dollars check.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you're right, Will. It's it's been the people. Um, just from what's that old uh, well, I don't know if it's an old thing. I'll take that back. Um, I read something somewhere that some famous business guy said and I can't remember who it was. Could have been Warren Buffett, could have been Steve Jobs, could have been one of those kind of guys. And it basically said that one commonality um, to many successful businesses that have started from scratch, that started with like in a garage, that one thing that they've always had in common—well, uh, sorry, three things they've had in common—is usually somebody with a very clear vision, like just a real sense of purpose. Uh, number mm-hmm. one. Number two, people that were willing to buy into that vision, like complete buy-in, almost like tribal loyalty buy-in. And number three, and kind of, I think in my book, most importantly, uh, limited resources. In fact, scarcity of resources. And the first two make sense, but the third one actually, to me, just really sort of you know struck the deepest. Because yeah, we that was us in spades, all three. I mean, I had this real clear sense of what I want to do that most people had no idea what I was even talking about, but just when I explained to them, bought into the uh, number two, yeah, those people showed up that completely bought into this idea of the vision, or maybe they were buying into the idea of me, but um, in either case, we believe in something. And then our limited resources basically made us really think outside the box and Mm. do things completely. It forced us to do things differently because we didn't have the money to do it the way we were supposed to. For example, opening with $250 in the cash register and not even having enough money for payroll and and using social media instead of putting ads in the local paper. um, You know, we couldn't afford to advertise at all, period, zero, none. And yet, at the same time, any time a charity approached us for any kind of benefit or to give food or to give gift cards or to come cook, um, we'd jump all over it. And now six years later, with you know four and restaurants and fifth of them in the way, we still do that. We don't advertise, but we give tens of thousands of dollars a year of food or time or, or effort into worthy um, really causes, charities. Whether it's you know, I mean, right now we're just recently doing a fundraiser for Our Voice, which is a rape and crisis counseling center, and um, the local chapter in Asheville, and we're just raising money for them, and, and we do that on a regular basis. So those three ingredients combined created an environment, if you will, that has allowed us to do sort of what, you know, you might seem extraordinary to to you, but to us, that was just the way we did things, Um, and that's how we're able to get to where we're today. Oh, man.
0: I could not agree more with the scarcity of resources. It really... uh I'll butcher this quote. I don't even know who said it, but it's, you know, um, scarcity is a necessity is the mother of all invention, I think it is. Right. And, um, that's exactly yeah, right. I mean, that's, which is so, and if you're listening, it's, don't let not having the funds or believing you have the resources keep you from doing it, because it really does, it, it does force you to think outside the box and be creative and, come up with ways that are not the conventional ways which a lot of times wind up being what makes you so successful um and Bill, i mean like look at that so you, you the conventional what did you do you tried the bank that's that didn't work the sba that didn't work so then you do this totally unconventional thing of like emailing all these people and saying hey could you could just lend us some money we'll pay you back and then what happens you create this rabid audience of fans, some who give money, some who give time, some who give both, all who tell others, and boom, you have this huge line out your door day one. But this is really, uh, I, yeah, I've heard that before too. I don't know who said it either, Marilyn, but it's, it really is a great, a great point, uh, to, to emphasize that, you know, scarcity of resources can actually be a really good thing. And if you guys have gone out and The bank had lent you half a million dollars, you probably would have done things very differently, and then you would have had this big debt load, and you probably would have spent a lot more money and been paying back the debt all this time. And, I mean, you started with 250 bucks, but, and you had debt in the sense that you had people that, you know, you wanted to pay back. But then that even makes you more. Like, you have these people that have trusted you, so it
1: probably fueled your fire even more to get it right, didn't it? Exactly. I mean, it was, and not only that, but they're rooting for you. Like, you know, there's yeah. you know, people that are not only loaning you money, but then they're showing up every day to eat at the restaurant to support the business because they, you know, believe in it and they wanted to, see, to be successful, not least because then they'd also get their money back. But it, it it just created this sort of, you know, a virtuous cycle, if you will, of basically goodwill within the community. And, and this is a story we were very open with the town about. Like, it wasn't like you know, it was no secret that this is how we raised the money to do this, because, like I said, all our friends that were there that loaned us money were helping out were telling their friends. I mean, it was like, you know, today they call it a Kickstarter campaign or, or whatever, or crowdfunding. Well, this was, you know, pre-Hitstar, this is our version of it. And, uh, you know, and because it was so local, um, all the, you know, it, it really did create sort of a, a cycle of goodwill. That's awesome, man. So, um
0: well, then, have you carried that over to the openings of your other ones? I mean, how have you guys, like, what's changed as you've kind of grown and... Uh, I and mean, then well, you're in, you're in two, two cities now, I mean...
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, raising money is no longer an issue, thank God. I mean, you know, the first... I mean, yeah, we, we opened, and those there's lines are doing this, that, the other. But our first major national write-up was, again, probably serendipity. Uh, the one year to the date, almost, you know, uh, after we opened... In October 2010, the New York Times came to do a write-up on Asheville called uh, the 36 Hours in Asheville, and they do this all over the world. They spend 36 hours in a city, and then they write up on the travel section of the Sunday edition of the New York Times, and I know people that will, you know, use that as a reference guide for when they go to a city and and do the things, because the New York Times is so highly respected. And they came to Asheville, and uh, they wrote up the 10 things to do in Asheville, and they Wrote up Chaipani and I think they recorded us as a star in the downtown dining scene or something like that and, and that blew it wide open. I mean, we we're getting called from all over the country with people calling to make reservations. Um you know, and, and Asheville star was simultaneously rising, more and more people were coming to visit, many more tourists were coming, many more people were moving here. So it all collided perfectly and, and sort of created this perfect storm for Chaipani to just reach sort of almost, you know, a, a much broader audience than just Just being in town. And, and then one, you know, these things had a snowball effect. One write up reached another, the next, you know. And, and also with Asheville, I mean, the more Asheville got written up, the more the magazines were coming in looking for the cool businesses to talk about. And the more we were perceived as cool, the more we got written up about. So, GQ, you you know, GQ and Man's Magazine and Huffington Post and, um, The Wall Street Journal and USA Today, I mean, and it just snowballed that first year. I mean, it was, it was, Insane, um and then the money started coming, and what I mean by that is <laughs> any literally once a week, I was getting a phone call from somebody that wanted to franchise or invest or, or open one at a new location and and you know I was so not prepared for this or even knew how to how to put up you know how to sort of handle this um we were barely you know able to keep the machine you know keep track honey. Sort of staffed and stocked and able to feed the amount of people that come to the door. So, um, so it took us, uh, 2009, 10, 11, 12, four years to open the second one. I mean, we didn't open until, um, what we open? At 20, late 2012 is when we started looking at the second location indicator. And, um, um, and at that point, you know, raising some money to open that was just as simple as reaching back out to the people that had asked invest with us that, were still what I would consider in the circle of family and friends, uh, except they had to figure my at So that's how we <clears throat> opened the second one. But um, as far as our ethos of how to open a restaurant, it, for me, like opening in the middle of a session the way we did was just a lesson that was insanely valuable because it just really taught me to look at numbers and how much it costs to open a restaurant and what it takes differently than if we had gotten all that money up front like you were talking about. Even with the new restaurants, we, uh, my, my term for it is rebootstrap it, you know, like so we take the least amount possible to have the least debt load in the business so that we can, um, you know, be, do things the way we want to do it and not be beholden to the balance sheet or to an investor payment schedule or anything like that.
0: Nice, man. That's good that you've been able to carry that over. That probably becomes a little harder over time because it is, you know, you, you have access to so much more capital, and uh, so it's good that you're staying on your toes, forcing yourself to stay on your toes. It sounds like, which is which is really wild for sure. Yeah. Um, so what? So then, you uh, you but you must have, and you now you've got these. So you've got several places here. To you must, you and Molly must have uh, found a way to trust people. You you obviously, yes. you know. Don't have your hands in all the details of all this yeah. stuff. You have to have good people managing this for you, and you must have a lot of trust in people and give them a lot of autonomy to do things, you know, within certain parameters, I assume. But, I mean, is that part of how you're able to to do that successfully, to have yeah. multiple locations? Yeah.
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, like, the, the core team, you know, the first, like I said, the first major expansion was, was Atlanta. And it was a big jump, and we went from a small 40-seat restaurant, you know, which... <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you're listening to many listeners maybe in the restaurant industry, just give you an idea of uh, how efficient and productive a place can be. A 40-seat restaurant two Saturdays ago did 315 colors for dinner. So, um that just, I <laughs> know, that just shows you, like, what can be done if you really maximize efficiency and productivity. But anyways, uh, we went from that to a 125-seat restaurant indicator in a much bigger market. Um before we opened, Atlanta Magazine named, said one of the 10 most anticipated openings of 2013. After we opened, we were named one of the ten best new restaurants in Atlanta, and ever since then they went exactly so we knew we were going into a much bigger higher visibility market, and some of the reputation that we built up was preceding us our in there to deliver so uh nine of our Sapani actual family uh uprooted themselves and relocated to Atlanta to help open it and uh, we determined you know i I called them my culture carriers, because I wanted them to bring, you know, three plus years of sort of this culture that we built at Chaipani to the new business there, even though we'd be hiring, you know, 50, 60 new individuals there. And, um, and, and some of them came back because they were able to do their job and come back to Asheville, and, and some of them stayed on there. So, um, off the, you know, we had opened the Chaipani kitchen with four hires in the, in the kitchen. Three of the four hires, um, that were all line cooks. The star with me are still at Chaipani and one of them, Daniel Peach, who's now the head chef and the caterer, he was just named a thirty and the thirty rock star by Zagat Magazine. And uh, the other one, James, is here with me in Asheville and he runs the kitchen program here. And um and that's kinda how we do it is um I mean many times um I will hire or hang on to people even though I don't have a job for them. And even may not necessarily be able to, even to afford to keep them on or, or to hire them, but because I know that one day this person's going to be a rock star somewhere else and help us go to business. So that's what we do.
0: Well, you, um, said, that's, I, you, that's really, you said earlier we believe in people more than we do in things, and so you really, I mean, this is, you, you you, you truly do follow through on that, and that's really how you operate. Um, you, you want good people in there, and you find ways to, to make it work in the organization so that they can, they can shine.
1: And, and trust, I mean, trust, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, it's like it's just an easy word to throw on trust your people. No, I'm saying like, um, trust to the point where if I know I've hired really good, smart people, um, um, I mean, you probably familiar with Danny Myers from the Union Square Hospitality Group from the restaurant here in New York, and he's got this great book called Setting the Table. Setting the Table. Yeah, and, and I, and there's a couple of ideas that I kind of stole from that book when, um, when we, uh you know, started really ramping up and hiring people, I was like, who are you looking for? And, I, and we've got our application online on your website. So if you were taking a look at it, it's probably the craziest application. Well, I don't know. You've got a lot of restaurants. So you've probably seen a lot of crazy applications. But, you know, we ask questions that many people, like, stop and go. I've never been asked that on the job application before. Um, and what I'm looking for is, like, you know, does this person have empathy? I mean, do they actually understand how – their actions make other people feel or the things they say. You know, does this person have sort of uh emotional intelligence, you know, or do, can they communicate well emotionally, you know, and, and understand how emotionally driven people are at the end of the day and, and how you motivate them is, is you know, by connecting at that level. Um, You know, do they have an excellence reflex that Danny might have talked about, you know, what he says. You know, people duck reflexively to throw something at them, and the excellence reflex is a similar instinct to fix something that isn't right. And um, you know, the, 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 for me, work ethic is not about how, how many hours somebody puts in, how hard they work. Work ethic to me is this inclination to always do something as well as it possibly could be done. Nothing less than that for somebody who's acceptable. And there, there are people all around us wired that way. So, we look for that combination, and then I really actually let them run with it and I go, "Hey, I would do no better or no worse than them in their shoes with decisions and if I trusted myself to figure it out and and make the right one, then I gotta trust them too um you know, as long as I have my culture carriers in there in in the midst of them, um, I know you know generally speaking. You know, our culture will be intact, but I'm going to let these people make their own decisions. So that's how TreadPuddy Decatur runs now. It's a completely autonomous business where my job is just to inspire, um, you know, and, and, and not worry too much about micromanaging their decisions.
0: Yeah, I, I uh one of the guys I interviewed for our book a few years ago said if you wanna uh you know if you wanna grow you have to learn to let go and I always kinda remember
1: that. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um he, he,
0: he AI, talks no, 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 no. about going from, from micromanaging to learning like he learned, you know, he figured out every time like I can't I have to let go and trust people and then you know, that allowed him to grow and he's got a really successful operation with a bunch of restaurants and um but he's not he's yeah, not down to do
1: oh. All the successful guys eventually have to figure that out. I completely agree with you. So, um well, you
0: guys have had uh just a really inspiring and wonderful story, Marilyn. I mean, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing it. There's so much to learn from this. Uh, so much to learn from this. And by the way, folks, if you're listening, do, do read Setting the Table. It's like a phenomenal book uh, by Danny Meyer, and it's timeless. He wrote it a long time ago, but it's a great book. I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed that mentioned that book. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it,
1: it, <laughs> Go ahead.
0: You know, just cause it's no surprise to me that a lot of the folks I've interviewed that are very successful, like yourself, and you know, big kind of figures out, have read that and have applied a lot of that. um operation. I, I well, that's exactly own. what I was going to say,
1: yeah. I was saying most of the people you interview, I'm assuming if they've enjoyed some success they've probably at some point or the other picked up, you know, some of the more inspiring books in our business, and that was really, yeah, it was really, I mean, it, it, I think a lot of people that are drawn to a book like that and then want to sort of practice some of the precepts are naturally inclined or instinctively already figured some of that out themselves. Danny just helped sort of, you know, articulate it better.
0: That's right, that's right. And then you probably and some of that stuff may be in the back of your mind but you don't uh you know, you, yeah. I mean it, it, the, the key thing too is the implementation. Like there's one thing to go, Hey, that sounds pretty but then to go, you know, I'm buy I buy into that. Like that 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 resonates with what I kinda of thought in the back of my mind. I'm gonna do that. Um and, and and you know, executing on that is uh that's what it really comes down to. So and you guys have clearly done that really well. So well got <laughs> I mean, folks, if you're in Asheville, everybody, like, the word's out about Asheville now, I think, you know, it probably wasn't (laughs) in 2009. People know about Asheville now. It's a beautiful town in North Carolina mountains. It looks like somebody took, like, a town in Oregon and picked it up and and stuck it in the North Carolina mountains. It's awesome. It's beautiful. Great people there. Great uh, vacation place. Probably one of those places where you go and stay and you, you know, at places like Saipani and your other places, and you, you you interact with all the people, and you see the scenery, you're like, why don't we just move here? <laughs> it's like so, uh great town. Um, well, listen, hey, man, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I do want to ask you one more thing, uh, just real quick, because sh- I grew up in North Carolina, and I love barbecue, and I would eat barbecue yeah. just about every day. So tell me yeah. tell me about how like, how did you guys get out into barbecue there at Buston Hall, and, and what what's that all sure. about?
1: Um, again, it's back to people again. <laughs> it sounds so funny to see this over and over again, but it really was. Um, one of the other chefs in this town, Elliot Moss, he um, was the chef of this restaurant called the Admiral, which kind of blew up at the same time so I he did. Um, he went from being a dive bar on the long side of the tracks in kind a of concrete concrete cinder block building to one of the most sort of you know, talked about and renowned gastro sort of pubs in in this region. And you know, res- you know two weeks to get a reservation and. Written up and accolades, and he too was nominated for a James Bitt Award back in 2014 or something like that. And, um, and then one day he walked away. Um, and, uh, I was kind of met him professionally through the circuit. You know, we cooked in a few events together and showed up at a few industry events. And, uh, so, um, I reached out to him and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And he said, well, um this whole time, he was, he was not an owner of that business. He was just the chef, but, um, he had been basically, in his words, been made a promise to um, have his own restaurant one day, um, and then that fell apart, and then the partnership fell through. Um, and it was going to be um, whole hog, Warnerson, wood Woodsmoke, Carolina, Eastern Carolina style barbecue. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know much about Eastern Carolina style barbecue. I mean, I was in California this whole time, and when I first came to the South, and I would say, hey, I'm having a barbecue. You guys want to come over? Uh, somebody would correct me and say, look, if, unless you shot a pig in the head and spent eight, eleven 11 hours smoking it, it's not a barbecue. It's a cookout. You're, you're <laughs> blowing out. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're not barbecuing, bro. I was like, right, okay, got it. So, um, so um, and, and but the, here's the thing. It's like, I recognize an Elliot sort of, um, that same spark that I had in my eye when people were asking me about chai pineys before we where I'd kind of get like a mad scientist look in my eye and start going off on them about why I thought this was the best idea in the world. And Elliot had that look in his eye when he was talking about barbecue. He grew up in Florence, South Carolina, and he grew up eating this sort of Eastern Carolina barbecue. And I was like, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. He says, well, let's do this. Why don't we go on a tour and I'll show you what I'm talking about. So we ended up renting a caravan, piled five of us in there, including a Local food writer for for the local magazine and a and a, and a uh, videographer and we spent five days going through the Carolinas eating at some of the most iconic barbecue joints out there you know um, Rodney Scott's in Hemingway South Carolina um, Sam Jones's place in uh, Kingston or Aden, North Carolina uh, and on and on and when I came back not only to have an education in barbecue but I knew that. Um, I wanted to help Elliot, um, open a restaurant. And, uh, so we kind of like literally sort of, you know, just fell into an easy sort of conversation about finding a space and helping him build this thing. And, uh, Molly and everybody in my company was looking at me like, why are we getting into the barbecue business? And I'm like, you know, I, when I opened Taipani, it was obviously I had to do Indian food and I had to do the food I was interested in because it would be the most authentic to who I was in prison. But I'm, I love food of all. I mean, I would have, you know, as happily opened an Italian restaurant if I was Italian. or right? a Colombian restaurant if I'm in Colombia, I said, it just so happened to be. But I still love food and love other cultures and love the food. And I, this guy is on to something amazing. Because I would go to those restaurants and see the lines of people outside, those little shacks yep. in the middle of nowhere, beautiful barbecue. And I'm saying, there's something going on at a cultural level that runs deep. The way it does for Indians when they come into Chaipani and start and get tears in their eyes because they're eating the food that they hadn't eaten since they left India 15 years ago. And, um, and I like, and I, I want to tap into that. And I believe in this guy. Um, and that's what happened. So, you know, it took us a year and a half to put all the pieces together, but we finally did. And Buxton Hall opened about three weeks ago and it's, you know, it's everything we ever hoped it would be yeah, so I
0: can't wait it's, to come out some of that barbecue, my friend. I mean, my mouth is in oh. water
1: right now. I mean, I'm <laughs> actually in Buxton Hall downstairs uh, in, the, in the office talking to you, and I can smell the wood smoke. It's all 100% wood fired. We're the first, mm-hmm. I think, one of the, you know, I, definitely the only place in Nashville that figured out how to put the pits inside the building because we ended up with a 10,000-square-foot Ex-roller skating rink from the 1920s where that used to be in a black neighborhood that so was actually sort of, you know, the African-American roller skating rink of Asheville in the 1920s. Uh, soaring high ceilings with barrel wood ceilings that go 20, 30 feet high, floor to ceiling windows that look out onto the mountains, and you walk in and you feel like you're stepping into like, you know, Valhalla or something like that. <laughs> and you get the pits and the smoke, and, and yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's any food you getting from
0: Mm, my friend, so we, were we were about two and a half hours. I might, I might make a day trip sometimes. <laughs> Give okay.
1: me a call or text or email me if you're coming out. I'd love to,
0: love to see you. Awesome, man. Okay, well, that, so that's really in the end. Of course, the you know the point there being, it just this goes back to what you said. It's clear. I mean, I really love this. is the believing in, in people? And what was what's his name? Your partner there? The, the, um, um,
1: yeah, Elliot Moss.
0: Elliot Moss, a so you. You saw, as you said, the bad scientist look in his eyes, the passion and love and, the, you know, the vision that he had. And, and uh, there you go. So, man, I'm so excited for you all. Uh, I really well, thank am. I that along to Bali, and you guys are awesome. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. This is highly educational for anybody that listens to this. And uh just can't thank you enough. And I, I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks, Jim. Man, and saying we, we love you guys. We love Schedule Fly. I tell everybody in your shot about your software. And not only that, it's like, I see your story, I read your story, and I see glimpses of everything that I've been talking about and what you guys have done. I know your story pretty well, too. i read the book. Um, you know, it's, I just think what you guys are doing are amazing. And it's the fact that I can pick up the phone and one of the answers, it, it blows my mind. And every day I get approached by millions of, you know, software, Sort of companies wanting to us to try this because or that. Because I'm, I'm like, no, I got my people. I believe in these. Oh guys. man, I, I love that i that.
0: That's so kind of you, Marijuana. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, uh, the philosophies are very similar, man. So we love. I mean, that's who we love to serve. Uh, people that kind of think and think the same way, and so we're we're really excited.
1: Cool. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. It was an honor to be on your show. Uh, you know, just thank you so much for everything, and I'm sure we'll be talking years from now.
0: Uh, we I will be there soon. I'll be in touch. I'm 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 done. not
1: kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, Take care. Alright, how you doing? I see you. You too, Bye.